Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is uh, Professor Richard Wolf. He is the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, the most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two apps.com. His website's Professor Wolf. Welcome back. We have 30 million people on unemployment. God only knows how many don't qualify for unemployment because they're gig workers or they've been laid off too long. The Washington Post this morning, half of all American families facing utility shutoffs, a third of the people in some states more than three months behind on their bills, a looming eviction crisis. How long is it going to take for America to recover from the damage that Trump has done by the way that he has responded to this pandemic? Well, I think the best way I can answer that question is uh, with history, as happens so often. I would argue for most Americans, if you think about it, the entirety of the 20th century in the United States was a reaction to all that had happened in the Great Depression of the 1930s. If you think about it, the war itself was clearly, uh, partly at least, a product of all of that. Uh, the role of Roosevelt, the, the movement to organize unions, I mean, vast changes produced in and by the Great Depression. And then the rest of the century, I'm simplifying obviously, but the rest of the century was the determination of the business community and the Republican Party to undo as much of the New Deal, the name of the events of the 1930s, as they could. It started immediately when Roosevelt was dead uh, by getting the limits to the presidential term uh, and the Taft-Hartley bill uh, punching the unions back down compared to what they had uh, achieved. And I tell you this story only because I think we're about to see the same development. I think the consequences of this crash uh, all three of them, you know, the, the dot-com in 2000, the subprime mortgage in 2008, and now this uh, devastating one uh, in 2020. The combination of them is shaking the foundations of this society. You can see it reflected in the crazy politics we are now surrounded by. But yes, it is also in the millions 
of little decisions of people moving from one part of the country to another, uh, losing their credit uh, capacity because they can't pay those utility bills, uh, education that has been interrupted for millions of Americans with unknown long-term consequences. My view, we are at the very beginning of seeing how much damage has been done and how much of our next decades of history will be involved in coping with and fighting out what was done, what wasn't done, and this whole disaster that could have been avoided but wasn't by a regime that seems incapable of even thinking about the long term, let alone dealing with it. Neil Howe, Neil Strauss and, um, or maybe it's Neil Howe, Strauss and Howe, in any case, these two authors wrote this book. You may be familiar with The Fourth Turning some years ago. This was back in the late 90s. It was a New York Times bestseller. And it posited that, I mean, he starts out with Toynbee's quote, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable because, you know, we don't remember the horrors. And he identified that basically, or they identified that as basically an 80-year cycle. That in the 1770s, we had a, essentially the Great Depression of 1770 that led to the American Revolution and radical economic reforms, you know, throwing out the East India Company and, and creating a whole new government. In the 1860s, you had the, the Great Crash of 1856, you know, on top of the rise of oligarchy in the South. That led right to the Civil War. So you had a crash and a war. That was 80 years later. 80 years after that was the great crash of 1929 and the Great Depression. And that, you know, resolved itself after World War II in 1945. We are from 1945, what, 75 years out from 45? Right. If I'm doing my math in my head right. And so it seems like we're due for another Great Depression followed by a major war. First of all, do you give any credence to that theory? And secondly, whether it's you know, a coincidence of history or a function of history, what do we do about it? Well, you know, I'm not much on these numerical games. I understand what they're trying to say, that there's a pattern here, and I think that's a valuable contribution. But I would analyze it in a somewhat different way. Capitalism as a system, which was the governing system over all those periods you just quoted, has a tendency, that was Thomas Piketty's book a few years ago, has a tendency to produce ever greater inequality, which isn't surprising because every business is run by a handful of people, the owners, the major shareholders, the board of directors, and we shouldn't be surprised that they run that enterprise to to serve themselves first and foremost, whatever else they do. And so as a result, they become richer and everybody else doesn't. We're in an extreme form of that now, and I think that happens over 60, 70 year periods. There's a reaction by people. It is undone for a while. The 1930s undid the inequality in the United States, for example, quite dramatically. But as soon as the war was over, as soon as Roosevelt was dead, we began resuming, and especially after 1970, resuming the drive to an inequality, which then reached 
reaches such an extreme that there's an explosion. Sometimes it's in the form of a stock market crash. Sometimes it's in the more the form of massive joining of unions, which is what happened in the 1930s. And I think, yes, we are at that point again. We are at levels of inequality we haven't seen for a century. We have a political polarization that is terrifying, more so literally every day. We have a political out-of-controlledness that is a symptom of a system in decline. If I could play another historical game that isn't so numerical, in the 14th century, uh, another pandemic, this one with fleas on rats, known as the bubonic plague or the Black Death, decimated a huge part of Europe. Europe was then organized as a feudal system, lords and serfs. It never recovered. The decline of feudalism begins then and could not be reversed until the French and American revolutions finished it off and we have the era of capitalism. How ironic that history might be playing a game on us and bringing us yet another example that if you let the inequality in a community go long enough, so that a disease comes along and we can't respond, even though we know how, because we are so busy in our broken, divided society, that this is a way of learning bitterly the lesson that you can't let a system that works this unjustly and unfairly continue, because one way or another, it's going to blow up. Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. It was the uh, smallpox epidemic spreading across Europe in uh, the year, I think the year was 147, that uh, some historians point to as being the thing that took down the, the Roman Empire. You know? Absolutely. It, because usually so, what, what, so, what the epidemiologists tell me is that when a society is reasonably healthy, politically, economically, biologically, it can and usually does ward off the viruses, the bacteria, and the other thing. It's usually a measure of a society's breakdown that it can't handle. And that's what we're seeing. We know, Americans know how to produce masks and ventilators and hospital beds. We know it. We didn't do it. The government didn't compensate for the failure of private enterprise to do it. And here we are with a failure we ought to listen closely to. Yeah, and, and look at European countries and Canada who have a fraction of our death rates. And right. uh, Yeah, amazing. Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by today, sir. Thank you, Tom. Good to talk with you. Thank you. Back at you. We'll be this back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, we have a special video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about how FDR in 1944, in fact, January of 1944, in his uh, State of the Union address, talked about how important it was to add rights to the Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights was all political rights. He said it's time to enshrine economic rights in our Constitution. I would add, like most of the governments of Europe have done, and this includes the right to housing, the right to food, the right to to a good job that pays well, the right to an education, including a college education, and the right to health care. It's pretty powerful stuff. And frankly, I think that what this coronavirus crisis is proving is that we are all in this together, and that Reagan's thing about government is never going to help you was just a, a load of crap. 
And so you can check it out over at TomHartman.com. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Ralph in Clear Lake, California. Hey, Ralph, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I just read a study by the Rand Corporation. It analyzed income growth over the past 45 years and found out that the bottom 90% of workers should be bringing home an additional $2.5 trillion in total annual income if economic gains were as equitably distributed as they have been in the past. It said a full-time right. taxable, yeah. yeah, right, exactly. So taxable income sits at fifty thousand dollars should be making about a hundred thousand dollars a year. And uh, rich yeah. people, top one percent, average income now stands at one point two million dollars. Wow. Any, anyway, I just wanted you're, to bring you're talking about the top one tenth of one percent. Yeah, I, uh, they I, said I, you know, I don't know 1%. about that. But. <laughs> no, the top, I, to be in the top 1%, you only have to make 360000 or at least that was the number last year or the year before, uh-huh. the last time I looked. But, but I get your point, Ralph. And, and this, is, this is not a bug in the system. This is a feature of the system. This is how the Republicans designed this system. And it, you know, this is Reaganomics. What you're looking at is Reaganomics. Drop the top tax rate from 74% down into the 20s, which, by the way, is the same thing that Warren Harding did back in the 1920s. They brought us the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. And here we are, you know, the, the yeah. roaring 2000s and the Great Depression. Uh, and yeah, and you wipe out the middle class. And as you wipe, as Professor yeah. Wolf was pointing out, when you wipe out the economic base of the American middle class, you make all of our society more fragile, more capable of you know, being blown around, buffeted by the winds of, of you know, just all kinds of god-awful stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of racism, of sexism, of misogyny, of... of uh, you know, political discord, et cetera, et cetera. And there were many of us who were pointing this out, by the way, back in the 1980s, that what Reagan was doing was going to destabilize this country. We are reaping the whirlwind right now from Reaganism, from 40 years of Reaganism. And it's time, and I pray to God, metaphorically, that, that well, literally too, that, that if Joe Biden becomes president, that he puts an end, that we drive a stake through this bloody vampire of Reaganism and return to some sort of rational economic policy. On unemployment, this is something that is very concerning. This from the Axios newsletter today, a number, the number of people considered long-term unemployment has made a worrying bounce in recent months. Friday's job report showed that, this is last Friday, 3.8 million people have lost their jobs permanently. That's twice as many as at the height of the pandemic in April when the entire country was shut down. The first layoff waves hit in March and April. So this is going to be a tough one. And it's not getting any better. 2.4 million people have been out of work for 27 weeks or more. And therefore, many of them, and depending on the state, they're starting to lose their unemployment insurance. 4.8 million have been unemployed between 15 and 26 weeks. And here's where it gets interesting. The unemployment rate went from 8.4 to 7.9% last month. And Trump was out there saying, hey, look at this, unemployment's going down. It turns out virtually all of that drop in unemployment was because people stopped looking for work. The labor force participation rate has fallen a full two percentage points from its February levels to the lowest since March of 76. That was the Arab oil boycott. You know, that, that was... That was when America, you know, really got crushed, as I recall. 
This is the largest in history, and the rebound has only gone halfway. Women's labor force participation is as bad as it's been since February of 87, when women were still entering the workforce. Four and a half million people were prevented from looking for work due to the pandemic, and thus not counted. Four and a half million people, because of a pre-existing condition, aren't willing to go out and expose themselves. They're no longer counted in the numbers. They're not unemployed. This is nuts. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Richard Wolff's Understanding Socialism. This is from the introduction. Socialism is a kind of yearning for a better life than what capitalism permits for most people. Socialist yearnings are as old as capitalism itself because they are its products. Where and when capitalism's problems and failings have accumulated criticism and critics, socialist voices have arisen. And so it is again now. Any serious discussion of socialism must begin by acknowledging socialism's rich diversity. Whatever particular aspect of socialism we choose to analyze, they need to be located within socialism's complexity. That avoids presenting one's own interpretation as if it were the entirety of socialism. In this book, I focus on the economic aspects of socialism, how it differs from capitalism in broad outlines. I'm more interested in socialist critiques of capitalism and their implications about socialist alternatives than in the particulars of the few early experiments in erecting socialist systems, USSR, People's Republic of China, and so on, that history so far offers. Finally, my own education and work constrain me to concentrate on Western Europe and North America. Some important aspects of socialism are thus not covered or discussed here. Yearnings for better lives, such as socialism proposes, are not new. In slave societies, the slaves hoped and dreamed of lives less hard and less out of their own control. Their yearning aimed to obtain freedom. They sought social change that would preclude any one person being the property of another. In feudal societies, the serfs, free in the sense that no one owned them, yearned for better lives too. Their subordination to lords included heavy labor and other burdens that they wanted lifted. They hoped and dreamed of a society in which they would not be bound to the land, the lord of that land, and the feudal dues of labor and subservience. The serfs mobilized in the 1789 French Revolution to demand liberty, equality, and brotherhood. In effect, the serfs had expanded on what the slaves had called freedom. In the American Revolution against British King George III, the revolutionaries were neither slaves nor serfs. They were mostly self-employed farmers, craftspeople, and merchants subject to a foreign feudal kingdom. They wanted liberty as individuals to pursue their dreams without hindrance from feudalism or monarchism, whether foreign or domestic. They added democracy to the goals advanced by the slaves and serfs before them. The different systems of slavery, feudalism, and small-scale self-employment produce masses of people yearning for better lives. Eventually, each of those systems provoked revolutions. Many people then sought to break away from and go beyond those systems. The French and American revolutions marked key moments in the social transformations of major pre-capitalist systems into capitalist ones. By capitalist system, we mean that particular organization of production in which the basic human relation is employer-employee instead of master-slave, lord-serf, or individual self-employment. The revolutionaries who wanted and built capitalism hoped and believed the transition to employer-employee relations of production would bring with them the liberty, equality, brotherhood, and democracy they had yearned for. The revolution's leaders promised to themselves and to the people they led that those goals would be achieved. But the transition to capitalist employer-employee relations that increasingly replaced the previous slave, feudal, and self-employment relations of production had unintended consequences. Capitalism soon proved to be different from what its revolutionaries had hoped. While it enabled some people to be more free and more independent than slaves, serf, or self-employed subjects of monarchies had been, it also seriously limited freedom, independence, and democracy for many. Capitalism betrayed many of the promises made by its advocates. 
It produced and reproduced great inequalities of income and wealth. Poverty proved to be as endemic as capitalism seemed equally adept at producing and reproducing both wealth and poverty. The capitalist rich used their wealth to shape and control politics and culture. Democratic forms hid very undemocratic content. The cyclical instability attending capitalism constantly threatened and hurt large numbers of people, and so on. Growing numbers of employees within capitalism began to yearn for better lives. They defined those yearnings first in the familiar terms of the earlier French and American revolutions, equality, fraternity, liberty, and democracy. They criticized a capitalism that failed to deliver those to most people and demanded social changes to achieve them. Many people still continue to want a better, softer, friendlier capitalism, where government regulates and intervenes to achieve more of what the French and American revolutionaries had yearned for and promised. They are also often self-defined as socialists. However, capitalism's development provoked another different perspective that also called itself socialism. In that view, capitalism had not broken from slavery, feudalism, and monarchy nearly as much as its advocates had imagined. Slavery had master slaves, feudalism had lords serfs, and monarchy had king subjects as their key sources of their inequalities, lack of freedom, oppressions, and conflicts. The employer-employee relation of production and capitalism generated parallel problems. Capitalism installed monarchies inside individual workplaces, even as monarchies outside workplaces were rejected. Kings mostly disappeared, but inside workplaces, the owners or their designated boards of directors assumed king-like powers. The book Understanding Socialism by Richard Wolff. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, Harold Aya is with us. Harold Saves America. No, seriously, a Norwegian comedian and sociologist and TED Talk star is going to be talking with us about the Nordic secrets of happiness. Harold, welcome to the program. Be on your show, Tom. Thank you. So, first of all, you are in Norway, you are Norwegian. And should we disclose that you've agreed, uh, in exchange for being on this program, that you'll sponsor me for Norwegian uh, citizenship if Donald Trump wins the election, or should we not talk about that? I'm not an expert on American politics or anything of that kind, but I'm, I'm an expert on Nordic societies, and I love the United States, and I'm here to inspire you all, because, you know, Tom, the rest of the world, we are worried. So what is the rest of the world worried about with regard to the United States? And what would be the starting point if you could awaken American citizens to what you all in Scandinavia and Northern Europe have figured out that we seem not to have gotten? First of all, I worry because the United States is a leader of the free world and you can criticize what the United States have done. But compared to the alternatives like Russia or China, China is actually saying straight out now that our system is better, which obviously it's not. So, since from our point of view, what we see in the United States is that um, you're on the wrong track and you need some new ideas. And my project is to, to pay back because you inspired us and you've helped us so much and inspired us 200 years ago to get our own freedom. And what we see now, and we can see this in the facts and statistics as well, that Americans are not happy or they are less happy than they used to be and they feel less free than they used to be compared to Scandinavians who are on top on almost every chart. So what I want to do in all humbleness 
is to uh, present you with some ideas of how to organize your society and take you out of the old tracks, the old ways of thinking. For instance, freedom. We have a system that can give you more freedom than your system could give you. How so? So, we all need help in our lives, okay? From the moment we're born, we need help from our parents, of course, and later on we need help to get an education and we need help to get work and, you know, when we get sick and all that. So, what you have done, because Americans... Society has this idea of the state, that the state limits your freedom, okay? So what you have done is you have become more dependent on your parents. Young people need money from their parents to get an education. And employees are more dependent on their employers because the employers can give them health insurance, and can fire them, and old people are dependent on their children in the United States. What we have done is to organize a strong, impersonal welfare state that helps us all the way. So we don't rely on our parents. So women don't have to rely on their husbands. So old people don't have to rely on their kids. So that's the idea. Uh, but you're stealing that money from rich people, Harold. No, because rich, we can discuss that, <laughs> the technical details there. But rich people, they pay their taxes and they get a lot of money back from the system. I'm quite wealthy. I have a sister. She's a psychiatric patient and she gets a lot of money from the state. So our family, even though some of the members of our family pay a lot of taxes, we get a lot back. So it feels fair. But this hmm. is a, this. I think this this is a part of the American society that is hard to see when you're American. That how dependent you are. For instance, I have some statistics there. Tom, are you interested? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so I check the numbers because I have friends living in the United States, and they are always shocked to learn when they hear about how dependent kids or the adult kids are the whole much parents are involved in young people life for instance visiting their kids at the universities if i visited my kids at their universities they, they would be so embarrassed because parents in the united states have to pay for education help them micromanage their lives because kids get so little support from the state you know here we get free student loans and you know I didn't mention for my parents that I'm going to study sociology. I just did it because they didn't pay for it. huh? And the end result is that American teenagers and young adults are more dependent on their parents. You can see this in the statistics that if you check a whole big share of 15 to 29 year olds living with their parents in the United States, the number is 67% are staying home with their or living home with the parents. In Norway, it's 38. And this is 15 to 29-year-olds. So all this, it's easy to think that it's all about culture and values, you know? Okay, we live in a time where parents are, you know, helicopter parents always taking care of the kids' needs. That's not a choice you do based on values. It's a result of economics. 
Yeah. There are also some sociological variables at work here, Harold. In the United States back in the, I believe it was in the 90s, there was a young boy who was kidnapped and murdered, and it became a cause celebrity, and his father started a TV show, America's Most Wanted, and all this kind of stuff. And basically what happened was Americans, you know, watch TV, and American families all across the country decided that it just wasn't safe for their kids to go out. So, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 1950s, when I was a little kid, I, you know, I, I would leave home in the morning and I'd come home at dinner time. I mean, you know, and my friends and I would travel all over the community and we'd, you know, all over the neighborhood. We'd go down to the forest. We'd hang out in the rivers. Kids can't do that anymore because everybody's afraid that some predator is going to get them. And I, frankly, I don't think that there's more predators than there were before. But it's like it's a national hysteria in addition to the economic factors that seem to have created. It's almost like in the United States, young people don't become adults until they're 30. And they used to become adults when they were 16 or 17 or 18. The media could be a part of it. But I think it's if you force young people, my daughters, for instance, they are 19 and 22. It was quite tough for them when they turned 18. I said, no, you're grown-ups. No, it's up to you. You have to pay your own bills. I can't fix your life anymore. But, of course, it made them mature very much faster than if you just keep on helping them with money and support. And, and what I'm really shocked to hear is that so many 20-year-olds in the United States, they have their parents as their best friends. That's bizarre. Is that a bad thing? Yeah, your parents, they shouldn't be your best friends. You should, we love our parents. parents. And we visit them. But we don't owe them anything. We don't have, feel that yeah. we have to phone them every day. So, Tom, for instance, your education, what, what's, your, what's your formal education? It's pretty meaningless. I, I'm a dropout. Tom. So... <laughs> so. We're hitting a break. Harold, hold on. We'll be right back. Okay. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Talking with Harold Aya, a Norwegian citizen, about, you know, what we're going on here. You know, we've, we've got this list of money, freedom, happiness, racism, democracy, trust, gender, religion. I'd like to insert into that, Harold, you know, health care and education. You're talking about young people. It seems to me that one of the reasons, I know, just speaking for myself, Louise and I have three kids. And, you know, for each one of them, our deal with them was we'll pay for the first four years of college and then you're on your own. All of them went on to graduate school. And between the three of them, I think they've got, you know, six solid six figures of college debt. That doesn't happen in Norway, does it? No, we get student loans, but a huge part of that is turned into grants if you finish your degree. So uh, you don't end up with too much loan, uh, no. I think it's also a part of the whole story is that when you have a society where the differences between the worst paid and the best paid, the difference is so big, you know, like a person working in a grocery store compared to a medical doctor. I think the medical doctor earns like six times as much in the United States. In Norway, it earns like three or four times. Then it doesn't matter too much how much education your child gets because if he or she ends up in a, you know, working in a grocery store, he or she will have a decent living. So we as parents don't have to push that much because it's not a crisis if our kids don't turn out to be, uh, you know, having a master's degree or 
higher in education. So that's part of what I think makes life more stressful. If the inequality is huge, then it's tougher. Life is tougher. So you have to push more. You have to help more. You have to micromanage your children's lives more. Right. To what extent are the things that we're talking about unique to Norway as opposed to the Scandinavian countries as opposed to Northern Europe? No, no, it's not unique. It's, uh, it's the whole Scandinavia has the same system, and, I, and to a certain degree, Germany and Netherlands as well. So, um, right. It's I think it originates in, in an idea that we have that talent is so scarce that we have to help everybody to get an education. But in a huge country like yours, where there are so much talent, you can, you know, you can be a little more. <laughs> you can make the system more tough, but we have to push everybody up. And one yeah. thing I find especially interesting is, is feminism, because modern feminism was in a way invented in the United States. Huh? And American women inspired women in the whole rest of the world. But now, gender equality in the United States compared to gender equality in the Scandinavian countries, it's two different worlds. So, uh, well, let's pick up that thread on the other side of this break. It's sure. in the Tom Hartman program. We're talking with Harold Aya, a Norwegian sociologist and fascinating guy. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Welcome back. We're talking with our Norwegian buddy, Harold Aya. And Harold, you were just talking about feminism and how feminism sort of the modern feminist movement in the world in many ways originated in the United States back in the 70s. And yet the United States has fallen way behind Scandinavia. Tell me about that. Yeah, the whole idea of feminism is to give men and women equal opportunities. huh? And the way we have sold that is to have a state, and I think, I, I know a lot of, maybe some of your listeners, I don't know, think of huge, powerful state, then everybody becomes dependent, and it's a nanny state, and, but it, it's the other way around, in terms of more independent and free. So, for instance, women, how can they be on equal foot with men? They need support systems. They need maternal leave. They need free childbirth. They need that men are motivated to take paternal leave so they can go into back to work and have a career, huh? But if you don't have that, if you just leave it up to each couple and each woman and each man to decide how uh, gender equal should we be, then you end up with 27% of moms staying at home. Because kindergarten is very expensive and it's hard to combine work and being a mother. In Norway, 4% of moms are staying at home. So what, what, which affects the, yeah, because... The, is that because you have again, universal pre-K, you have universal preschool? Absolutely. You have to pay, but it's very cheap. And uh, of course, you have monthly child support as well from the state. And that doesn't matter if you're very rich, and that's the whole point of the system. Everybody gets 
welfare. You know, Donald Trump would get child support. <laughs> so it's for everyone. And that motivates the middle and the upper classes to contribute, huh? So what, mm-hmm. which effect does this have on American women that they are so dependent on their men? Well, it turns out that American women are more interested in how much men are paid, how much money they have. So if you ask American women, if it's very important that a man can financially support his family, 71% say it is. And that's not because they're materialistic or, you know, that they are greedy. It's because the society makes them uh, dependent on men. They wouldn't care so much about how much money men earn if they could get help from the state. So the state sets women free from men and fulfills Tom, the feminist dream from the 70s. Okay. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying, Harold, is that, or, or, or how I would interpret what you're saying, is that here in the United States, we've embraced this uh, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett uh, ideal of, you know, the rugged individualist white man, basically, you know, can stand on his own two feet and support the little lady and the children around him. Whereas in Norway and Scandinavia, let's generalize this, in Scandinavia, yeah, yeah. you all are saying, you know, we're here for each other. It's not just the family is for the family. The country is the family. Is that a good characterization of it? In a way, I would call our system state individualism because we're not altruistic or, or collectivistic. We are extreme individualistic. So we care mm-hmm. very much about our freedom and we want to decide for ourselves what we want to do in life. And more than any nations in the world, Scandinavians, I think that it's so important to learn the kids to be independent. And so we don't feel like this is a family. It's more like, like we have this, the state is like this mother that doesn't want you to call back. They just, she just gives you money and not bad conscience and no strings attached, except you have to pay some back some of the student loan, of course. But apart from that, you... When you have a strong state, you become more individualistic than if the state leaves you alone, because then you need help from others, and you have to pay them back, and you owe them something. So this is a, like the, it's a strange new idea that it's not very intuitive, but when you look at the numbers and when you look at the stats, that's what they tell you, that Scandinavians feel freer than Americans. We're higher on the Freedom Index from the Cato Institute than Americans. And you love freedom, and we do, so this is the solution. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Harold, are you willing to take some calls from our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to do that. Okay, let's do that after the break. We'll be back with Harold Aya from uh, Norway, answering your questions about what life is like in Scandinavia. Stick around. It's uh, it's Conversations with Great Minds on the Tom Hartman Program. Hartman Program. And we'll be right back. Stick around. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. On the Science Revolution this week, Donald Trump has tested positive for COVID-19. 
What does that mean for America? Dr. Michael Mann is here on Greenland and how it's set to lose more ice than in the past 12,000 years. This is a climate disaster. Gene Ross from National Nurses United drops by about the widespread failure to track and report data on COVID-19 deaths, testing, and infections. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear joins me from New Mexico, begetting a radioactive waste dump. And in geeky science, an awe walk, A-W-E, an awe walk may do wonders for all of us right now. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. And welcome back. Harold is on the phone with us from Norway, and uh, let's pick up some of your phone calls for him. Jonathan in Portland, you're on the air with uh, Harold. Hi, Harold. Hi, Tom. So I spent a lot of time as an American living in Scandinavia and Sweden and Norway for a while, and I have some strong opinions about the differences between the two countries, but I think the single most important difference is that the literacy rates in Scandinavia are virtually 100%. In the United States, one-fifth of the population is illiterate. That's 43 million adults. And you can't run a democracy in a country that way. That's why Jefferson established the University of Virginia. He was so proud of that that he had it inscribed on his tombstone. That's the single most important difference. And I could go on, but I don't think people really fully understand and appreciate how crippled America is in in educational terms. Yeah, it's a very good point. I've I've seen some other interesting research done that draws the same conclusion as you have done, gentlemen. When you use uh, twin studies to measure uh, the share that genes uh, the, the effect that genes have on, on your level of education, it turns out in Scandinavia, genes uh, mean more, has a bigger effect on the level of education. And what does that mean? It means that social background doesn't matter as much as in the United States. So if you're uh, born uh, with some talent into a poor family in the United States, the chances are quite big you won't get hardly any education. But if you have some talent, and you're born into the lower classes in Scandinavia, the chances are you can really do uh, go from uh, rags to riches. So um, I think it's true. It's, it's very efficient for the economy and for the whole the trust level of society and the equality to give everybody a proper education. Yeah. Craig in Half Moon Bay, California. You're on the air with Harold Aya. Good morning, the morning psychologist, Tom, helping America ease our anxiety. I have a psychological question. And my, by the way, my mother's from Bergen, Norway. Here in America, we have a large percentage of the population who seem to think it's okay to vote for a racist who's obviously corrupt. And we haven't cured that. I think it's a psychological problem. I do have a suggestion on how to cure that. And I'd like to give that and then take my answer off air on what has Norway done to ensure that they don't elect, that people don't support, you know, racists and Nazis. And here's my suggestion. I don't think Nazis and racists should own firearms, and I think that if we simply talked about that, there would be a reduction in the number of people who support Nazis and racists. What does Norway do to eliminate those kinds of politicians from their political system? We do have racists and Nazis in our country as well, of course. We do have a lot of immigrants as well. There are a certain percentage of the population that really are against immigration and don't like foreigners. So, but it doesn't get 
it's a grip on the population as a whole. And I think that has to do with we have uncoupled, we have decoupled skin color from class. So if you are, uh, your parents are from Morocco or Pakistan, you become a doctor and a lawyer and do well. So then we don't associate skin color with low class and laziness and bad moral, all that. So racists, uh, they have, don't have much appeal here. That's one part of the question. The other part, I think, I saw some statistics, statistics showing that Americans' trust in government started to decline in the 60s. It was very high. And then it went down to from 60% trusting the government to, I think it was 30 25%. And when, you, when, when the regular voter feel that the system is not working, it's incompetent and corrupt, you vote for some bizarre person that will, you know, drain the swamp. But in Scandinavian countries, we don't feel a need for a, a strong man coming in and just, you know, <laughs> cleaning the table because we feel that the system works and we trust the government. So that's two points I would make. Okay. Alfredo and Mountain View, you're on the air with Harold Aya. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, yeah, my comment is pertaining to Trump's enablers. I mean, not a single Republican senator has come forward to condemn this racist president, which tells me that uh, the entire Republican senator is a white supremacist uh, senate. Uh, we have a despotic government. And how do we deal with this? And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you, Alfred. I don't feel confident to answer that. My question is why I, it's hard for us to understand on the other side of the Atlantic why, I mean, so many people seem to be supporting Trump. Uh, okay, he's a bad person and he's incompetent and all that, but I would ask you, Tom, why is it that so many people feel he's the right man to lead your country? Why is that? Because he is expressing racial grievance that is founded on... 40 years ago, America embarked on a massive social experiment and economic experiment. We, we turned upside down our economic system so that the rich would get richer very, very rapidly and working and middle class people would find it a much harder time to get by. This is called Reaganism. A couple of years before that, 1976-78, the Supreme Court said that billionaires and corporations could own politicians. And so what we've had now is the gutting of the American middle class over 40 years. Ten years ago, in 2010, we hit the point where fewer than 50% of American working people were still in the middle class in the United States. That's how badly it's collapsed and how rapidly it's collapsed. It's much worse right now. So you've got a lot of people who, by and large, white people in the United States, whose parents were middle class, they worked in factories, they had good lives, they had good retirements, they had decent health care, and it wasn't obscenely expensive, and they don't have any of that. And they and their kids are wiped out. They, you know, it costs 100000 bucks to go to college, and you can't declare bankruptcy on your student loans. It costs, you know, $13,000, $14,000 a year to have health insurance. You know, rent is going, everything is going up. Wages are going down. Job insecurity is huge. And so they're looking around going, why did this happen to me? And Donald Trump and the Republicans, instead of saying it's happening to you because the Reagan experiment has failed, 
They're saying it's happening to you because of those black people and because of those brown people. This is how Trump started his campaign. Brown people are coming from Mexico to take your jobs. They're responsible for your misery. Elect me. I'll put them and their children in cages. And that's how we got to where we are, in my humble opinion, Harold. So Americans don't feel anymore that if they work hard, they will succeed. They feel that it's hopeless. That doesn't matter how much they how much effort they put in. Is that a general feeling? That's by and large, that has by and large become the case. So in Norway, is there that, I mean, you had Anders Breven, right? You've got one of the, one of the biggest mass yeah. murderers in the world was in Norway, you know, killing absolutely. liberals and, and whatnot. Is this yeah, a problem absolutely. in Norway too? Um, it's a fringe phenomenon. It's, it's there, like in every country. So we're, we're not, this is not a paradise. We have a lot of problems, but when you compare, there are fewer races here than in the United States, even though we have 20% immigrants there. Yeah. So, I mean, racism in large parts of American society is, is politically and socially acceptable. Is that the case in Norway? Is it really? Uh, yeah, it is. Racism? Like, okay. Uh, no, no, that's not common. No. Okay. All we right. Harold Aya from Norway. <laughs> we're, talking, we're talking about this. I want to get into the Norwegian healthcare system, too. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We're talking about the Scandinavian model and comparing it with the American model. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. Leslie in Gainesville, Florida. You're on the air with Harold. Hello. We only want to teach classes here in the United States that are to find jobs, ignoring the contributions of the creative arts to life. How is it different in the Scandinavian area? I'm sorry. Could you say that again? I'm sorry. Uh, Lion is not perfect. Could you say that again? No. How is creativity thought of over there and the contribution of music and art and all that to your countries creativity creativity music art one of the things that has been really hot here and thank you for the call has been really hot here in the united states is this whole stem thing you know science technology etc you know engineering and in many schools in the united states we no longer teach music we no longer teach philosophy we no longer teach literature you know how about norway yeah it's a discussion going on what does the country need versus what it's fun to do what is it fun to study but Again, I think it's because Scandinavian societies aren't that tough. It's easier to succeed. I mean, it's easier to get a decent salary. So we can relax a bit more when we study. We can say, I've done did some classes that obviously wouldn't bring me anywhere, but I felt I could do it because I would get some work when I ended. So I think that's when I meet American friends, they are much more, they're planning what to study or what the kids should study, what to be smart to do to get into the work life. But when you have these strong unions that we have, we have really strong unions, more than half of the employees are in a union, then they control the wage ladder. So uh, you get paid if you're unqualified and 
And the fun part is that if you're qualified, if you're an expert in computers, let's say, you earn less in Scandinavia than in the United States. So really talented people, they get better paid in the United States. So we are, in that way, we are squeezing people together. And then intelligent and creative people can spend more of their time also in school doing arts and music and all that, up to a certain degree, I mean. Yeah. So, uh, yes. But, you know, assuming that a person has, you know, some baseline talent for, you know, music or art, mm-hmm. can you make a living as a musician or an artist in Norway? Oh, yeah, yes. We have a huge amount of money that is spent on grants for artists. And that's, of course, that's a left-right wing discussion going on all the time. How much should we leave to the market and how much should we um, pay from the state, from the government? So. Some people mean we have too many writers, too many musicians, and too many artists. But that's a political discussion going on all the time. Yeah, remarkable. have a new video over at TomHartman.com. This one talks about the radical idea of universal health care. What countries in the world might actually have universal health care? Something that, according to Republicans, we're just not smart enough or competent enough or whatever. It's too, it's too radical an idea, you know. They include Australia, Austria, Belgium, Canada, Chile, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Israel, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Poland, Portugal, South Korea, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. So why can't we do it here? Well, because you've got an entire political party, the Republican Party, and a few Democrats who are wholly owned subsidiaries of the health insurance industry. And you've got a health insurance industry that's paying its CEOs millions, in one case, in health care, billions, or billion. And uh, so, gridlock. Anyhow, it's over at TomHartman.com. Harold is on the phone with us, Harold Aya from Norway. And uh, Harold, I had a quick question. How does your healthcare system work? It works like this. When you get sick, you go to the doctor and then you pay like a small amount of money, maybe uh, $10. And if you're really sick, you you get, get into the hospital and then you pay nothing. So, for instance, I had a, we got a child that was really ill and we stayed at the hospital for eight weeks. And not only is the medical care free, but we got a room, hotel room, close to the hospital. And of course, I couldn't work, so then we got money from the state. So uh, we were on Facebook groups with uh, parents having the same, uh, having kids with the same disease in the United States, and they complained about their financial situation all the time, which we didn't. We didn't think about it at all. But of course, we were worried for other reasons, but not the, the economic part of it. So it's, uh, it's very convenient. Yeah, fascinating. And how do you pay for it? Through taxes. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I would say that if you're very wealthy, the healthcare system in the United States is better. For instance, when my kid was ill, we get, did not get like the most expensive treatment that was available. So we can't, I can't go in and say, I'll give you $1 million and then treat my kid in some new high-tech way. You can't do that. You have to get what they offer you. 
and we uh, that's a part of the whole deal. But everybody seems to be happy with it. And what I find interesting in these days is that, like 20, 30 years ago, it was this was all about ideology. I mean, I don't like. I think the market should solve uh, the healthcare system, or I think uh, government should do it. No, we know the answer. And if you measure how much health you get out of each dollar, the state system that works best. Yeah, and you guys have better outcomes than we do. You have a longer lifespan and things like that. Exactly. Okay, uh, Alex in Chicago, you're on the air with Harold. Hi, thanks so much. Uh, I agree a lot with what Harold's talking about. I just wanted to make a comment about the sort of hypocrisy of the right or those that want to limit government, that government's too big. You know, our government, our Constitution, it's supposed to be of, by, and for the people. So we, when we talk about taking away the power of the government, taking away, you know, making it smaller, that's taking away power and making the people's voice smaller. And that's what I feel like the right doesn't really get. And they get lost in this whole, like, anti-socialism, anti-this rhetoric that they don't even realize that what they're asking for is to take power away from government to hand it over to private companies and we see how that turns out so that's Mm -hmm. all and then as far as trump i understand there's a racist element for people who support trump but i actually have a couple people in my family that support trump and one of them's black i don't think it's necessarily about race i think as americans we're just obsessed with businessmen and how things should run like a business we're completely disillusioned by politicians like tom said earlier we have a celebrity obsession i mean all these things that trump kind of and and, and we're leaping to things alex if 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 i could step off of that in fact harold is that happening in norway harold we have just a little less than a minute before we hit the end of the hour yeah i just want a quick comment about alex said because i think it's interesting because 150 years ago i would agree that the strong government limits your personal freedom but the modern state is not that anymore. It's very service-minded. For instance, the other day was a windy day, and a tree outside my house broke and fell down. Then I just went to an app, and then I filled up outside. Yeah, there's a tree and fell down. Can you please pick it up? Two hours later, the state had picked it up. So it's so service-minded and efficient. So that's a new state I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> Things, things work. Harold, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. It was fun. It was fun. Really fun. Okay. Yeah. Good luck. Amen. Thank you, Harold. Harold Aya from Norway. We will be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It starts with you. So get out there, get active, and let's try to be a little more civil. Tag, you're it. Take good care of yourself. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader.
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.